RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 282. Progress, or progress, maybe. Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm just an old podcaster, setting my ways, able to go gruff and tough, rough and tumble, able to seem sexist and arrogant, while still lighting a spark of insight and warmth in a folksy, down-home manner. But you can call me Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Yeah, Log, I remember we... this one time. Y- yeah. Yeah. It was nice. Okay. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. This week, progress. Or is it progress? The one where Kira meets a set-in-his-ways, gruff and tough farmer and works to make him a disfarmer. I've got trivia coming up, but first... But first... A word about the Mission Log Pret-a-Porter collection. That means ready to wear en français, which means in French, en français. Summer's here in the Northern Hemisphere. Time to get outside and let your geek flag fly, which you can do with our Mission Log and Trek-themed stuff. I started to say shirts, but uh, it's not just shirts. In fact, there is a tapestry. You know, we call it a tapestry. That could be your geek flag. And you could let that fly. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah, thank Mm -hmm. you. Here's what Mm -hmm. we've done. Uh, We partnered with a guy named Carl who does some really great design work. And he is is just every every now and then sending us a new design uh, that we get to throw into the Mission Log shop. Um, which are just, I mean, they're really fun. I was, uh, I was wearing my Lieutenant J shirt just yesterday, as a matter nice. of fact. I thought you were. Yeah. And, and, you know, people could wear their Lieutenant J shirt. They cannot wear mine, however. Uh, there's also a, a new carbon chauvinism design. Uh, there is, of course, the uh, um, remembering Nova Squadron had Nova Squadron actually done well. And then there's the old mm-hmm. stuff that we've had before, Ethos, Pathos, Logos, uh, Cool as Kirk, uh, the Ditalix Mining Corporation, front and center, uh, just all kinds of designs that people could check out. And John, they can have all of those all kinds of designs on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, well, like you mentioned, Ken, you can get T-shirts, you can get stickers. And you heard me once again, we have tapestries. <laughs> We're here to see the tapestries. So much good Mission Log and Star Trek goodness in the Mission Log Podcast shop. So here's what you do. Go to missionlogpodcast.com. It's so easy. And then you click shop at the top right of the page, and then you shop. See how easy I just made that? And send us a pic. Just go ahead and do that. Send us a pic of you with your new Mission Log gear. So you support this show and you look cool doing it. So click shop at the top of the page at missionlogpodcast.com. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of those shirts in Vegas. On people. Oh, we'll see a lot of those. Yeah, On, right. people. on people. Yeah, not sure. just like laying around or anything mm-hmm. like that. But uh, yeah, that's going to be cool. Hey, uh, I mentioned before that John's got trivia coming up, or maybe John mentioned that. <laughs> I get us confused sometimes. <laughs> anyway, trivia is coming up in a moment. But first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. 
Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And did we mention, by the way, there is a shop there as well. Please do remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, John told me that I told you that we both said that trivia was coming up. And that moment has arrived, ladies and gentlemen. It is trivia for progress. Or is it progress? Well, here we go, Ken. Trivia for today's episode, however you say it. The episode was written by Peter Allen Fields. No surprise here, since we've talked a lot about Peter's contributions to DS9 as a writer and producer. His most recent episode for which he got a writer's credit was Dax. And this episode was directed by Les Landau, another very familiar name. Now, this is Les's first directorial credit on DS9, but of course, he started way back when as first AD on Encounter at Farpoint on Next Gen. Then he had an uncredited directorial debut when he took over from Russ Mayberry when he left Code of Honor. Ouch. Les continued directing at Next Gen, almost to the very end with Season 7's Bloodlines, while he was also at work on DS9. Well, here's a fun bit of trivia. It took Aaron Eisenberg a reported 19 takes to get his line about self-stealing stem bolts because you try saying that through Ferengi makeup. Now, he was terrified that he would be seen as difficult by racking up the number of takes that it took. And and then he got it right. And then Ciroc Lofton flubbed his line that came after it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, maybe a tense day on set for this episode. Now, let's talk about guest stars. We have Michael Buffshever as Minister Turan. Michael had a small recurring role on Breaking Bad among his many guest star credits, but he's someone who has shown up in track before, too. We covered his next-gen episode, Timescape, which actually aired only about a month after this episode of DS9. Prior to that, even, he showed up in Star Trek VI as an engineer on the Excelsior. We have Terrence Evans and Annie O'Donnell playing the silent pair Baltram and Kina, respectively. Terrence was an L.A. native making the rounds on TV. He has two credits in DS9, and he will be back for one more on Voyager. He also has the distinction of playing Old Monty in the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then the younger version in the sequel that was a prequel. He passed away in 2015. Annie is one of those constantly working character performers in both TV and feature films. And while this is her only Trek appearance, she does have another really fun Trek connection. She had the recurring role of June Wheeler on Night Court, so you would have seen her each time with Bob Wheeler, played by Brent Spiner. Hmm. And finally, Brian Keith as Mullabach. Well, here we have an actor who has really done it all. He came from a showbiz family. He made his debut in 1924, at the age of three. Now, in case you haven't seen Pied Piper Malone or The Other Kind of Love, both from 1924, don't worry, because he turns up just about everywhere else after that. He had a handful of appearances on Tales of Tomorrow in the early 50s. Uh, Then fast forward a bit, and he'll turn up on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show, uh, A Family Affair, and starring in Archer. Uh, That's the one from the 70s, not the animated series Archer. And he starred in The Parent Trap, well, 
second only to Haley Mills, and he continued late in his career with voiceover work, including Uncle Ben in the Spider-Man animated TV series from the 90s. We lost Brian Keith in 1997. What kind of trivia segment was that? Seriously. How does John not mention the great work Brian Keith did on Hardcastle and McCormick? Prologue. Quark has a problem on his hands. 5,000 wrappages of Cardassian yamak sauce, which sounds delicious, but he can't unload the stuff. Hearing about it, Nog senses an opportunity for profit, though. We'll have to get back to that, because in Ops, Cisco is overseeing an important procedure. Bajor is attempting to transfer energy from the molten core of the moon Gerardo. It's a big deal. And Kira and Dax head out for another inspection on that moon where they find signs of life where there shouldn't be. Does it have to be completely lifeless? Yes, afraid so. Everyone was supposed to have been evacuated by now, but when Kira beams down to take a closer look, she finds a couple of people who aren't very friendly. Act 1. Those unfriendly locals are called off by a man who emerges from the home nearby. He's Mullibach, a cantankerous but kind enough man who does what he can to distract Kira from her mission by inviting her in for dinner. Back on DS9, Nog is dragging Jake along to get to the bottom of the Yamak sauce. They meet a ship captain who does a lot of trading with the Cardassians. Should be an easy sale. The Cardassians love their Yamak sauce. They'll do anything to get more Yamak sauce. They'll, they'll go on for nine seasons if that's what it takes to get Yamak sauce. If it takes 97 years, they'll get their Yamak sauce. The ship captain says he's not really in a position to buy all that sauce, but he will trade for it. How about a hundred gross of self-sealing stem bolts? Uh, yeah, cool. Deal. Now Nog just has to get the yamak sauce out from under Cork, which is surprisingly easy since Cork just sees that junk is taking up space in his bar. Kira is faring a little less well on Gerardo. Motherbuck is squaring her away with busy work to get dinner prepared, dropping in a few tidbits here and there about how he's been here for 40 years, and those two companions he's got were tortured by the Cardassians. They like the quiet of the life they've built up here, and they have no intention of moving. Even if this energy project would benefit thousands on Bajor, Malabak says he'd die if he uproots his life and moves to Bajor, so he'd rather die here. Act 2. Dinner time on the moon, Malabak is regaling Kira with the story of how he made it here. Forty years ago, he was a prisoner of the Cardassians, starved, isolated. He overpowered the six-person crew on the transport ship, then single-handedly tamed the land— he used his hands literally to work the soil. He ground minerals with his teeth. He eked out an existence until he thrived there. Kira's listening with equal parts wonder, disbelief, and anxious boredom. She's got a job to do, but he just wants to tell his story, a story his silent companions have probably heard a thousand times. Whether it's true or not probably isn't the point. By the time he gets to the end of it, sensing Kira's disbelief, he asked her how the Bajorans managed to defeat the more powerful Cardassians. She said they held on like fanatics. Now that is an understanding the two of them have in common. Act 3. 
Stem bolts, baby, you want them? Nog and Jake have got them. And these aren't just any stem bolts, they are self-sealing. What does that mean? Nobody knows. Not even Chief O'Brien. Nog and Jake hatch a new plan to unload them, though. They'll get in touch with the original buyer and offer to sell at a discount. The situation in Ops is getting a bit more tense. Kira has returned to give Cisco and Bajoran Minister Toran an update. She says Mullabach won't budge, but they might be able to buy a little more time until they can come up with a new solution. One possibility, use an alternative method of energy extraction, one that's less destructive. But that would take another year of preparation, leaving thousands of Bajorans without adequate power in the meantime. The minister reminds Kira of her job, and she says she'll complete the mission. Back at Gerardo, Kira arrives with a security team, ready to take the inhabitants by force, starting with Baltram and Kina, Mullabach's silent neighbors. Mullabach delays and delays with Kira the more she says he'll have to come with her, no matter what. About that time, the security officers come running back, having been attacked by Baltram and Kina, and when Mullabach gets into the fray, one of the security officers pulls his weapon and fires. Act 4. By the way, Nog and Jake have found the original buyer of those stem bolts. They present themselves as the No-J Consortium and try so hard to get some latinum out of the guy. Not happening, but he does have some land to trade. Sound good? It doesn't to Nog, but it definitely does to Jake. Guess these two now have some land, or a dirt patch, depending on how you look at it. Mullabach will be okay with some tending by Dr. Bashir, but the old man needs care. Kira refuses to let him be taken away, though, and in that case, she will stay behind, leaving Bashir free to return to DS9 while she discards her uniform jacket and starts building Mullabach's kiln. Bashir reports back to Sisko that it looks like she just quit, and at the very least, she's jeopardizing her job. Sisko is cool, though. He'll make it sound like Bashir asked her to stay. For now. So she does, tending to Mullabach's wounds, and she gets to tell him a story of her own. When she grew up, she hated this nasty old tree. But there it was, even scaring away the wildlife. But did she cut it down? Well, she says she doesn't know yet. Well, before we can dig too deeply into the tree metaphor, Sisko himself beams down into the middle. He asks to speak to Kira in private. She has a job to do, many jobs, and Sisko wants her to do it. This is not the time to be the underdog fighting against authority. He points out the obvious. She's on the other side now. And here's another bit of the obvious. Mullabach's fate is decided. Kira's is not. With that, Sisko beams out of there, leaving Kira to make a decision. Act 5. Mullabach is being... Needy. Needier than usual. He wants Kira by his side, even while he sleeps. Still, a long way to go in his recovery. And she seems pleased to be there for him. Ah, but let's check in on the kid, shall we? Nog and Jake, as business partners, are at odds about what to do with their land until they overhear some good news. Odo tells Cork that the mysterious Noje Consortium are doing business on DS9, but nobody knows who they are. Shame because the Bajoran government are looking to build a power plant on a huge tract of land owned by four separate entities, one of them Noje. They stand to make a profit. Quark does a little digging, but doesn't get far until his nephew approaches. How about a business deal? And it'll only cost you five bars of gold-pressed latinum. 
Motherbox seems to be doing much better. He's outside, still building, working on the kiln. When Kira finds him, she's got her uniform jacket on again. And she says there's not time to do anything else. This is the last tile going onto the kiln. And then what? Well, Mullabach goes to fire it up, and Kira steps inside to gather their belongings. He's not willing to leave, and says as long as his cottage is there, he's staying put. So she obliges him. By destroying the kiln with her weapon, then setting fire to his home. Time to carry on. Mullabach asks her to kill him. He'll die if he leaves his home. But she says she needs a friend. Two to beam up. The end. So let us return to the battle between Benjamin Sisko and the young Ferengi Nog. Mm -hmm. You know I'm Team Nog, right? I do know you're Team Nog, yes. I do have to wonder, though, how often before Nog, the 14-year-old Jake Sisko was sitting in a bar playing cards. Oh, all the time. You think I, so? Certain, so cert, yeah, just, you know, Starfleet is tough. So this mm-hmm. is Jake influencing Nog then. This is not <laughs> Nog for the first time actually being a decidedly bad influence on Jake. Mm-hmm. And and it's the one time that Cisco's like, eh. <laughs> doesn't even seem to notice. <laughs> like, you know, before Jake was like, I'm going to lunch with Nog. You've been eating too much with Nog. But now it's like, right, ah, but he's hanging right. out in a bar with Nog. Well... His dad's probably around someplace. It'll be <laughs> fine. Well, everything seemed to be fine after the, you know, after Cisco caught Jake teaching Nog how to read. He's like, cool. From now on, look, you want to hang out in a bar? You want to play cards? Uh, you want to start a business? You you just, you know, you warmed me so much fantastic. with you teaching that boy how to read. Yeah, yeah. Jake teaches yeah. Nog how to read and Nog teaches Jake how to shave points. It'll be, it'll be really, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, a moment in ops where, uh, O'Brien says differential subsurface movement is at 0.3%. And then the minister says, is that good? And Kira says, they tell you if it weren't, they just told him <laughs> that the differential subsurface movement is at 0.3%. Is that good? I, I, well, see, we, we don't know. Right. We don't know, do we? I, I yeah. guess, I guess if they said differential subsurface movement is at 0.5%, that's bad, by the way. Then you'd be like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. thank you for telling me. I appreciate it. I'll just sit quietly then. Similarly, that red blinking light for normal standby mode. Seriously, just everybody needs to come up with a new way to relate what's okay <laughs> and what's not. <laughs> just a, just a big screen that says, okay, you got a thumbs up. And then another screen that only lights up when things are not okay and a thumbs down. So just so I'm clear then, if I'm approaching like an intersection and there's a flashing red light, it's all good. All right. All good. Just breeze yeah. on through because right. flashing red yeah. means clear skies ahead, I guess. I have, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, th- this is the part of the show where I'm going to talk about something that is really irrelevant to the understanding of the show. Mm-hmm. But but I want to talk about this plan for just a second, because this episode is completely and utterly not about the plan. The plan doesn't matter. The story is about the characters. It's about the relationship. It's about what happens with them. Right. Uh, but the plan is we're going to tap the molten core of a moon right. as a new power source for Bajor. I have... <laughs> 
so many questions. Right. Um, first of all, what power are they using now? Okay. Because we, we live in a universe, or at least this part of the galaxy, that uh, you got things like replicators and, and starships with warp engines mm-hmm. and just all this cool stuff. Like, hey, how about replicate me a bunch of things that will heat up, like candles or firewood? Sure. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't even have to be that futuristic about it. Bajor does have a sun. And mm-hmm. oh, good. Yeah, talking yeah. today, you know, we have solar power, so maybe you don't even need replicators. Although certainly replicated candles does seem like a good idea as well. Sure, why not? And, and what about right now? What is powering their their spaceships and and other things that need power? That would be that would be an interesting question. Right. And can the Federation help to do something? Now I understand that in this particular case, Cisco is there more of like an observer. He's not really saying, Hey, let us give you some Federation technology, but that might be if you know that thousands of people are potentially going to freeze and or starve to death. Uh, you, you call up Picard, who's only only light years away at this point, right? And you say, Could you could you bring us something to help out? And here's another thing: if that moon is habitable space, why wipe out habitable space? Right. I'm, you I'm you with got 50 you. people up there. Oh, okay, all right. And and here's the other question. If you mess with your moon that much, does it not mess with your planet too? Yeah, okay. So here's what's weird, because we know <laughs> okay. they're tapping the molten core of this moon mm-hmm. to heat Bajor, right? Mm-hmm. Or part of it? Are, are they going to get, are they just going to like fly the warm rock there really fast? Is that the deal? I mean, it's like they're retaining that heat and just, they're going to get it there and they're going to dump it. And it's like, oh, well, we burned that guy. That's not good. Oh, that's cooling off really quickly. This may not have been the best plan after all. Maybe not. It's odd. And because, you know, because we're not going to talk about the plan anymore. Nope. No, there, therein lies the end well, of the discussion about the plan. No, unless you, you have another thing. Well, no, what's yeah. weird to me is, so the plan in Spaceballs for Druidia right. actually yes. makes more sense than this plan. Yes, good yes. call. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of energy pent up in, in, inside this moon, and we're going to take it out, and, and somehow that's magically going to heat part of another planet, which one assumes also has a molten core of its own. Like maybe, hey, there's another possibility. Go ahead and heat your planet, you know, with the interior of your planet rather than having to displace a bunch of other people. Um, Druidia, by the way, for people who don't remember, they were running out of uh, breathable oxygen on one planet. So they were just sucking all the breathable oxygen off another planet, which I'm, I'm saying actually does make more sense than this plan for Bajor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You even had, well, President Scroob even had Perry Air, which would, would get him through in a tough spot. So look, they, they had a lot going for him in Spaceballs. They did, but that's not this show. That's a different show. Hey, I got to say really quickly, it's, it's neat because Brian, Keith, uh, Brian Keith's character, Mullabach, left uh, mm-hmm. Bajor over 40 years ago. And yet he did take, you know, that Bajoran planetary logo with him when he went. You asked last right. week, does every, or not a few weeks ago, yeah. does everyone decorate with the Bajoran planetary logo? And the answer seems to be yes. It's uh, look the Bajorans. Uh, there may be things that they're known for, things that they are not known for, but branding is a really strong suit for them. <laughs> it's really good. Paralleled only by the Borg, I would say, mm. for their mm-hmm. for their wonderful and slightly useless logo. 
Um, Mullabach, uh, you know, I like to point out food every now and then. He talks about the roots. I just like to point out that that root that uh, he starts preparing and then he asks Kira to finish for him and then he takes away from her so he can finish. I believe that's daikon. Mm. Uh, I really prefer it pickled. It, really like pickled daikon. It looked terrible to me. It just looked terrible. Well, that hadn't been prepared yet. Well, that could be why. Yeah. 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 Uh, Let's talk about a a production note on the show really quickly. Not a a trivia thing Mm -hmm. as much as just a general production thing. From a production standpoint, the Cardassian occupation is a great way to pay extras very little money. Right? Other characters. Yes. Yes. It was always frustrating that ensigns and the like on the Enterprise D never even said, yes, sir. You know, (laughs) because give them a line and you actually have to pay them more. Right? Just ask our friend, Lieutenant J. But on and around Bajor, uh, they can't speak. The Cardassians took care of that. Seems a really harsh way to deal with extras. <laughs> that's, that's really, yeah. Can you imagine that meeting in the morning? Like, okay, so what do I do? Well, you <laughs> were tortured <laughs> right. by reptilian aliens. Yeah. You do not get to express yourself. Right. Not verbally, anyway. But yeah. like the pine trees lining the winding road, at least they do have names. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's, that's very good. true. Yeah, that's but very good. unlike... The chirping bird and the croaking toad don't make a sound. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, let, let's see. I, you know, the B plot is the whole Nog, Jake, Quark, uh, Yamak sauce, the whole thing. Uh, but there are some nice moments in there that I wanted to point out. Uh, just the, the moment between Quark and Nog when Nog is asking if he can get rid of the Yamak sauce. And Quark kind of berates him for uh, serving somebody a drink and then not uh, charging them for the replacement drink. And uh, but but ending that scene just with the simple thing of him turning around and saying, you're a good boy. Yeah. Like little moments like this are really well, A, they're nice, but but B, they're really necessary for the character <laughs> because otherwise he would just be hateful and terrible. Um, but it, it was a nice line. It was a nice way to put a cap on that scene. Um, really like that. And then Quark has another great line uh, when Odo is telling him about the uh, Noje Consortium. And Quark says, this time, however, someone has failed to include me. <laughs> Such a great turn of phrase. So wonderful. Oh, and hey, by the way, speaking of branding, did you notice our old friend 47 is back? I did. There were 47 other people living on that moon because, of course, there were. Total of 50, by the way. Mm -hmm. Total of 50 people on that moon. That's it. It's a moon. That's a... It's a whole moon. That's a lot of space. You can get 50 people on our moon, and our moon is small. Right, right, right. Maybe, maybe the 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 goal here would be to move some thousands of people from Bajor <laughs> to the moon. Where that look, I just uh, I, I can't go down that path. Where again. it's apparently yeah. warm enough already. Yes, yes, yes. and you but, can grow daikon there, and yes, and all kinds of tubers. Yeah, <laughs> even some forbers, maybe. 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 <clears throat> so there's one other thing that I did like in this episode, although I'm not sure if I like it, but I did like it. We talk okay. often about how, you know, Picard and Kirk, I'm not Picard and Kirk, I'm sorry, how Picard and, and Cisco are very different people. Although we're talking about it sure. less, the further we get away from Picard. Seriously, people, just be patient. We won't even yeah. remember his name <laughs> in like six months, okay? Um, I, did like the, uh, I did like the exchange between uh, Bashir and Cisco, although it does have the potential to go poorly. I mean, it, it has the potential actually to... to it, it could turn dirty. I mean, like, I don't mean dirty like sexy dirty. I mean, like, like mm-hmm. dirty pool dirty, right? 
Cisco bought a couple of days when he says like, so I'm going to tell them uh, that you said this thing and it would be really helpful if you would go ahead and say that thing so that I'm not lying when I say that you said that this has to happen. That's a, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's not all the King's men, but man. (laughs) It's, it's somewhere between that and like a Jedi mind trick, (laughs) which would be very hard to pull off on Bashir. I'm sure. The guy who played McCormick was even in Star Trek Insurrection. This is Trivia Gold. Mixed messages, thy names are Dax and Kira. <laughs> so apparently Dax and Kira are annoyed by all of the unwanted attention Dax and presumably Kira get on Deep Space Nine. And I put that question mark at the end mm-hmm. because we've heard Dax say before she kind of likes it, right? Yeah. And yet Dax, as a Starfleet officer, doesn't tell Morn no when Morn asks her to dinner. She's like, she and Kira are in the shuttle. And she says, you know, so, so I'm sitting there at Quark's and Morn comes up. Morn mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. up and asks me to dinner. And Kira's like, well, what did you say? And she said, well, I told him I was busy. Okay, well, no. Hey, I got an idea. If you don't want to go to dinner with him, say no. Mm-hmm. Right. So that would be like the it'd be thing two, I guess, because thing one is, OK, so when she had said that she liked the attention, it turns out she doesn't like the attention quite as much. Or maybe she just doesn't like it from Morn. The implication in this is that she lies and says that she's busy, but also she thinks he's kind of cute, which seems to sort of stymie Kira, which potentially makes her as bad as the people who want to pursue Dax simply because she's pretty. Mm-hmm. This is just like a mess. This, yeah. And it's not a big mess. It's not as big a mess as this god-awful plan they have for heating one planet with the moon of another planet. <laughs> we will we'll never talk about that again. <laughs> Which we're never yeah. speaking of again. No. no. Uh, past the other you know, three or four times it might come up in this episode. But I, I, it, it was sort of, and the thing is, this is one of those throwaway things. I mean, this was not filler filler, I don't think, but it's like that kind of thing. It's like, okay, they need to be talking about something. What are they going to be talking about? I don't know. Well, this would be kind of funny. What if like, what if somebody is as, as crappy and awful as Morn asked out someone as cool as Dax, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell it's just like a thing. It's not even a thing, except of course, well, on this show, it might be no, kind it's of a thing, thing right? <laughs> it might just be a little bit of a thing. Yeah. What, what was your, I mean, did, did, did that register with you? Did that show up on your radar or am I just being, you know, extra special me? No, you, you might, there might be a little extra special canon there, but no, but every time that scene came up, mm-hmm. I, I was, I kept trying to read what it was they were trying to get across. Cause as soon as it comes up, Kira's reaction is, ugh, mourn? Right. Like he's, I, you know, just, just the, the unwashed filth. <laughs> Of DS9. And I'm thinking, what if, what if Morn has a great personality? What, right. what if, uh, you know, what, what if Dax truly is considering this? And she just simply doesn't know uh, what side she's going to come down on this. Um, it, it, it seems like a misplaced scene. Mm-hmm. But I know that it's just in there as a joke because not even the joke being on Kira and Dax, the joke being on Morn, because Morn is the guy who will never speak again. And we right. know nothing about him other than what people say about him. Um, 
But apparently, now that we know uh, that, that Morn has an eye for the ladies, I wonder if we'll revisit this conversation with, say, like uh, like a Bashir and O'Brien. Hey, you know who asked me out the other night was Morn. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that. Bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, well, uh, what did you say? <laughs> and that could actually, because it's such a bad imitation, that could have been either of those characters. It's. I was just wondering which one that was. So, yeah, good call. In my head... I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you out loud either. Let's talk about Kira a bit. This is a uh, a Kira-centric story, and this is Kira either becoming the man or or realizing that she has become the man. Mm-hmm. But I thought what was interesting is that from our point of view in the audience, mm-hmm. uh, aren't we supposed to really be kind of pulling for that? Um, in this case, and again, regardless of this horrible plan, in this case, the energy transfer is necessary, as it is presented to us. We have to assume it's being done safely. Right. We have to assume that everyone else is behind it, save for this this one eccentric and his two friends who, who will not speak, cannot speak, unfortunately. And in this case, Mullabach is the unreasonable eccentric who is holding things up for everybody else. So the audience's sympathies are supposed to be behind the Bajoran establishment, supposed to be behind the plan. They're even supposed to be behind Kira in this case. In another version of this, I, I want to see Kira talk Mullabach into visiting Bajor, e- even if it's for some made-up reason, and have him meet other people, kids, whomever, um, and yeah, that's manipulative, uh, but we've talked before about people's inability to have empathy for other people until they get to know them one-on-one or until the problem is in their backyard. And, and yeah, in our comparison of Cisco to uh, Picard, and in this case, Kira, maybe learning something from the Picard playbook, it's probably the kind of thing that Picard would do. Hmm. Picard would sit down with, with a, a Mullabach type and say, yeah, I really understand your attachment to this land. And by the way, I want you to meet somebody. Just come with me. I want you to meet somebody. This is really important. And then they'd have a, a nice heartfelt conversation. And then that would turn that guy around. See, in another version of this, I want Mullabach to be imaginary. Because you're trying to solve a real problem here. And I get why you're trying to solve the real problem. And it's not a bad solution that you're coming up with. But Mullabach, I actually, when I was watching it, I was like, I, I kind of wish Mullabach didn't exist. I wish Kira saw him. I wish Kira knew he was there. And I wish Kira was going through all of this stuff with him. And I want him to not be real because mm. Mullabach is, I'm jumping to the end and, and I will probably say this again in the next episode. This episode is exactly what I asked for like three episodes ago, I think, or two episodes when I, when I said, okay, so so now Kira has had this revelation with the Kai, right, in battle mm-hmm. lines. Mm-hmm. And you, you got to let go of all this stuff, right? Yeah. This is an illustration of that. And so while I get what you're saying, I feel like I feel like this episode, I mean, we did with the Brian Keith character, we, we did with Malabak exactly what we have to do. Because Kai Opaka said three weeks ago, or however long in battle lines, you got to let this stuff go. Yeah. And now she's standing there having to let this stuff go. It's not even just having to let it happen. It's having to move on. It's having to progress, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the yes, the world is a different place. And it, it's interesting because in the behind the scenes trivia for this, uh, Michael Pillar at one point was quoted as saying something along the lines of, well, we got to the middle of the season. We're, we're coming up to the two thirds point 
in mm-hmm. the season. And we realized that we didn't have enough with Kira. What we have here with Kira is that that same kind of story progression, as you point out, the, the same kind of character progression as we had in Battle Lines, where absolutely, you, you put it perfectly, she has to progress, she has to give up this understanding of how the world works that she was conditioned to for all these years. And it doesn't mean that she was wrong in her original perception. It just means that things are different now. She's got to be a different person because things are different now. And yeah, we want to see a guy like Mullabach take the same journey. But if if Mullabach doesn't exist, maybe he's the real Mullabach. Or maybe we just all have our own individual Mullabach. I'm sorry, I I won't do that again because I did it a week ago. Uh, But yes, yes. Um, There's a a phrase that I really love. uh, The perfect is the enemy of the good, which I think I've mentioned on this show before. And what we have here is not a perfect situation at all to take Malabak away from his home. It's not a perfect situation to use a less invasive method of energy transfer if it would take another year. But there are still good situations or workable situations that come out from this. And and according to the story, it's better than doing nothing at all. Because if you do nothing at all, well, the people on Bejor are going to freeze. And if you do nothing at all as far as trying to move Mullabach, then you condemn Mullabach to death. Uh, so I, I, I do like the idea that they created a situation that was, that was that tough. And hey, we talked one time before, I forget which episode, and it came up a couple of times. So the first time we talked about this, about attachment to a place. Mm-hmm. And, and we got a lot of interesting feedback. And and I still do understand that there are people who have very strong cultural and familial and social ties to a place. And, and I'm not one of those people, at least not to the depth that some others are. I mean, that, that all kind of exists on a spectrum. And I, I do side with Kira here because what I like is that she has sympathy for Mullabach. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, nobody needs to die for this. In fact, there's so much he could be doing for others. I think that's the tragedy around the character, that he's got skills and he's a talented storyteller. Speaking of which, maybe there's another village somewhere that needs a Syrah. The guy would fit in perfectly there. He would just talk the thing to death. Um, but at the end of the day here, I want to see Mullabach be better. And I don't know that he can be better. He's, he's stubborn, but there are worse things to be. But to your point, really, Mullabach is sort of the the avatar for Kira in right. this spot, where Kira gets to be the one to be better. Yeah, he's, I mean, I know he exists. I know he's real. Although, think mm-hmm. about the stories he was telling, right? How he how he you know, plowed the, the fields in a straight line with his bare hands, and how he, you know, if mm-hmm. he came across some sort of, like, mineral clay, he would just grind that with his teeth, Right. Uh, that's he, what I did before recording today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it. No, mm-hmm. sorry. He is, I mean, he is, he is a set of ideals. He's a set of, uh, he, he's a glorious past, right? Even yeah. though, yeah. I mean, what's weird is his glorious past starts with, yeah, so I hopped a freighter and, and, and escaped, right? And of course, he then he did kill the people on the ship because there were only six of them. It wasn't difficult to do. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's got a he's got a he's got a tall tales feel about everything in his life, which makes him just an absolutely fantastic, as you say, avatar for mm-hmm. for Kira. Remember how disappointed Kira was to find out that she was not 
Johnny Appleseed or the evil Johnny Appleseed <laughs> as far as the Cardassians were concerned. Right. I mean, right. she was not, she wasn't anything as far as the Cardassians were concerned. And yet she had this, yet she had this huge, you know, this huge image or idea of what she was. And also she was still holding on to that stuff. That was actually battle lines when we found that. That was that same episode. Yeah, he's, I don't know, like anything, anything weird about this character, I'm willing to just totally write off to, I know he is not in fact a figment of her imagination, but I'm willing to write it off as that because he is her in black and white, but she can't be in black and white. So, you know, that, that sort of tall tale, that, that cardboard cutout of, mm-hmm. of, of Millibach or Mullibach, mm-hmm. uh, it can't exist in the world that Kira is moving into. From the Internet Movie Database description of Hardcastle and McCormick, a retired judge and his last defendant follow up on cases that were dismissed due to technicalities. Redemption, action, legalese. What is not to love? The episode is called Progress or Progress or Progress. You know, it's interesting, actually. I was sort of joking about that in my head when I was first writing the notes, but they're different things, right? Progress is a thing. Mm-hmm. Progress is a thing you do. I guess that makes one mm-hmm. a noun and one a verb or, you know, something like that. I'm, I'm no good at math. <laughs> but it's interesting to me to think about, like, like there are different ways that you could you could apply that. Like, you know, Brian Keith's character, Mullabach, is, is, is standing in the way of progress. And, you know, if they're going to progress both as individuals and as a society, something's going to have to change. I don't know what the title of this episode is, honestly. I know how it's spelled, (laughs) but I don't know what the title is, but that could be a fun thing. Anyway, uh, progressing on to the parts where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings, and figuring out whether the whole thing stands the test of time, uh, we start with that one, John. Uh, Does this episode progress stand the test of time as far as you're concerned does it hold up uh, to viewing today can i tell you that i was shocked to read somewhere because it's all subjective and and i i never read reviews before we do an episode because i don't want somebody else's interpretation mm-hmm. but every now and then you come across a thing like a ranking you know how, how do people rank an episode of ds9 or, or across the whole series or, or the whole franchise and Somebody somewhere had a a ranking, and maybe it was DS9 in total, or maybe it was just season one, and this scored near the bottom. What? And I was absolutely shocked. And I stopped there because I didn't want to read the why, but I was absolutely shocked that it, it stuck that low on the list because I think this is such a piece of Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely a slice of Star Trek. Going back to ideas that we talked about from TOS and in TNG, uh, uh, compassion and empathy and doing the difficult thing when the difficult thing is the right thing to do. Um, it's also a really great piece of character work. And, and there's great character work all around here. It's not just about uh, Kira and Malabak. But Kira's journey, her progress, 
is front and center in this episode. This is definitely becoming a staple of DS9, not just for Kira, but for all the characters. We see growth from episode to episode. Um, the Cisco-Kira relationship is wonderful here again. I, I, you know, we watch the episodes many times before we record and re-watching just that scene with uh, Cisco coming back uh, to the moon and getting in the way of her and Mullabach and then having the sort of the come to Jesus moment saying, I need you. You are ruining this for yourself. You need to get with the program. It, um, I, I'm saying it more harshly than he did, but it was such a genuine moment. It really uh, was great to see on screen. And what I love here, what I said before in the previous section, is that we're presenting a difficult situation where everybody is compromised. Hmm. There are good reasons and bad reasons to go down whatever path they choose to go down. Um, And I thought they came up with a novel solution at the end. Um, and in fact, it's a solution that is echoed in an episode of Next Gen, uh, Ensigns of Command, where Data destroys the aqueduct to get these colonists to move before an alien business syndicate basically takes their planet back after more than a century and, and sets up shop there and says, well, we're just going to kill everybody who's living there now. They're parasites and they're not ready to move. And Data says, I'm going to make you move. So, um, yeah, th- this episode is so purely Star Trek to me, but it's also great DS9 for me mm-hmm. because the characters are so good and there's so much going on. I didn't even talk about the B-plot, and I thought the B-plot was charming and wonderful. Um, and it was just nice to see those two doing something that wasn't the same old, same old, um, hopefully because we're past that whole thing with the uh, uh, the Jake and Nog and, and Cisco tension. I think we are. Um, If you look at what's happened with Jake and Nog and Cisco, actually, for the past three stories, we have seen progression. (laughs) We've seen progress from them, right? We've seen it progress. Oh, oh, nice. Um, There was the one where everybody thought, you know, Nog's just bad news for Jake. And it turns out Jake is teaching him to read. And then there's the one, um, the storyteller, but the B plot, the one with the kids, the one with, um, I can't remember, Varys, with Varys Sewell. Right. He actually brings her to a place of, I mean, there are two things that bring her to where she is. First of all, there's coming to trust Benjamin Sisko, which she does because she's hanging out with Jake. But also she says that there's a problem. And Nog says the thing that, you know, sounds like a motivational poster, but it's absolutely true. A problem or opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and we've seen growth from them, which has been just, um, just, a, just an amazing thing to see. Yeah, I had that motivational poster hanging up in here, right next to the one with all the cats. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. hang in there, baby. Yep, yep. Uh, so what else? What, what else? There's so much in this, but I, I as far as it holding up, a hundred percent. Yeah, I don't understand how this could rank near the 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 one way that I could see how this could rank near the bottom is because we don't come up with a solution that makes it good for everybody. But I go back to the one too where um, what's the one where Wesley goes off with the traveler at the end of uh, at the end of uh, next gen? Oh, sure, Journey's End. It's a bit like Journey's End, I suppose. I did find myself wondering whether she should have just left him there to die. That is what he wanted. Should she have just left him there to die? The problem is where he is an avatar for her. The problem is where he is. He is, he's not a stand in for Kira. He is a stand in for Kira's past. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she cannot leave her past behind. She can't kill her past. Her past is very much a part of who she is. She has to take that with her. She can't just totally be something different. And so in the end, when she burns down his house, when she holds on to him, and when they transport out together, despite his saying, no, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to go forward. That's her saying to herself, ah, it was so much easier when I could just fight. Yeah. It was so much easier when I knew, you know, when I knew exactly what to do, pick up a gun and shoot that guy, that scaly green skin guy. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and then it's Miller time or, you know, whatever the yeah. name of that God awful looking root was. Um, <laughs> I gotta say, I love Mullabach. I, I love his Paul Bunyan story. I, I yeah, love, I right. love the, I rolled on the ground until it surrendered. That's, mm. that is such a, I love that line. I love that line. <laughs> I love the way Mullenbach leads Kira to a point when, when they're talking about the Cardassian, uh, when they're talking about the Cardassian occupation. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the fun. Fun. You know what the Cardassians were like? Well, how'd you beat them? We, we hung on like fanatics. Huh? Got to remember that. I love that. That's just, it's, ugh. I don't, I, yeah, I'm, I'm offended yeah. by the people who put this at the bottom of any list, honestly. <laughs> no, I don't like the fact that he's using sexism to get Kira's goat, but I like the fact that it's acknowledged. I like the fact that, you know, once she recognizes that's what he's doing, then he knocks it off. I mean, there's a certain familial familiarity about them. I mean, he does still call her girl, I think, or something like that, but that's because he's, you know, 90 and she's 30 yeah. something and he's old Bajor and she's whatever she is. And I don't think she even knows what she is at the point that that's happening. I mean, there's almost a fatherly thing going on at that point. Yeah, it, it was definitely handled. Certainly better than the uh, the opening bit with the, the, the weird sexism vis-a-vis Morn and uh, Dax. And, uh, and not, not even sexism, just the uncomfortable part of the Morn, Dax, and uh, Kira bit. But yes, I, I love that they addressed that because that kind of redeemed what was going on before for me. Yeah, because it was getting a little tiring for me as well. Yeah. But then when she's yeah. like, you're doing that on purpose. He's like, yeah, okay. And then he stops, mm-hmm. which, uh, which, was, which was good. Um, I love the story with Nog and Jake. And I, I find it hard to believe that Quark wouldn't you know, go ahead and sit on that sauce. I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't find a way to profit off that. But I do love the fact that Nog did. Um, I was reminded of bad episodes of MASH and a throwaway from Goodfellas. Hmm. In MASH, you would get Radar or Klinger trading and trading and trading. And it would either go unnoticed or it would actually be bad. Like, I think there was one where, like, like, like Colonel Potter said he liked tomato juice or something. And so one of them goes through, like, requisition hoops to end up getting him a case of tomato juice. And that, that's, like, that's the whole B-plot for that episode of MASH. Yeah. And he just, he left it on the tray. And one of them was like, wait, I thought you loved tomato juice. He's like, yeah, I do, but it doesn't love me. That's it. It gives him heartburn. And so the whole thing is for naught. In Goodfellas, on the other hand, Henry brings fur coats to the guy who runs the fencing operation out of the restaurant. Oh, yeah. He's like, coats? It's the middle of the summer. I don't need coats. No, no, no. I'll take the coats. We'll put them in the freezer. We'll save them until later. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a well-constructed B-plot as opposed to just a, you know, it was a well-constructed B-plot. In fact, when I went back to watch it, one of the times... That was the plot, again, sort of like the one with Vera Sewell. That was the plot that stuck in my head. I think I'm so impressed with how they're treating the kids mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that I know this was obviously the B plot, 
but I'm I'm invested in what they're doing as opposed to rolling my eyes, waiting for Wesley to finish whatever he's doing so we can get back to the part of the show that we care about. Yeah. The part with Mullabach is Kira's story, as we talked about, sort of a continuation yeah. of battle, uh, battle lines, as we said. She has to let go of the fight. She has to let go of the past. And what's neat is you don't have to have seen that episode but having seen that episode, like I said before, we're getting exactly what I asked for, which was actual development. She didn't, she wasn't all of a sudden better the week after the thing with uh, Kai Opaka, nor was she back to just being the Kira that she had been before. It's even illustrated for us when Cisco's like, you know, when I met you, I thought you were arrogant. And, and it, it, the implication is he wasn't sure he could or wanted to work with her. And as you said earlier, not only does he say he needs her, he says that Bajor needs her. Yeah, it's a it's a neat thing, and and finally one last thing, I like the fact that his whole "if I leave here, I'll die" didn't end up actually being physically true. Yes, I mean it would have been easy to have him you know have a heart attack or something, something sickeningly poignant, right? As as he's about to leave and then he falls over and no, that part of her has to die. Really though, I mean he is her past, and it's like I said before. He, she cannot go without her past. Her past goes with her where she does. So he says, if I leave here, I'll die. She responds, no, you won't. I won't let you. This isn't just her acknowledging that she has to hold on to that. Not unlike um, Alt Kirk and Logie Kirk in, um, how am I forgetting the uh, name enemy, of that episode? Enemy Within. Thank you. Not like yeah. that in Enemy Within, where we just had basically Kirk having to have these two parts of himself that he didn't like go with him. This is her saying to herself, yeah, we're changing, but I'm not going to give up who I am. I'm changing who I am, but I'm not forgetting who I am, and I'm not giving it up. So that she yeah. can progress without losing who she is. And and obviously that ties into the message as well. You can change, you can move forward, but you don't have to give up who you are and you don't have to forsake who you were to do that. Yeah, I think this was really nice. And that, uh, like I said, that was kind of the tragedy of Mullabach is that he has so much going for him. He has ability and, and he has a story to do. He's got many, many stories to tell that you want to see somebody like that grow and, and keep contributing and yeah, the road changes. He's got to do something else now, uh, but he can change. He he can actually contribute to somebody else. And that's why I was looking for that uh, that that moment of empathy from him, because uh, we saw it from everybody else. Uh, but I wanted to to see a moment with him say, "Yeah, there are other people who need something that I can help contribute to." Um. And as far as messages, you know, the, the other stuff, I, I can't remember, I can't remember where I heard it, uh, but it's something along the lines of like the needs of the many um, outweighing other needs. Uh, oh, oh, the needs of the few or the one, something like that, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Just imagine if Mullabach had been a Vulcan. I mean, not a radical Vulcan like Cybok, because Cybok don't care. But uh, if, if he had been a guy that you just go to and say, hey, um, there are people down there who uh, face potentially death uh, if we don't fix this. And he'd be like, oh, I've just been living up here quietly for 40 years. But uh, here, let, let's do something about this, because it's logical that I would do something about this. 
But in this episode, there is no perfect solution again. And, and sometimes you have to do things that are for the greater good, even if there's not a clean outcome for everyone. And it's very interesting when Star Trek does stories like that. You mentioned a moment ago, Ken, uh, about, you know, we do get messages from people who uh, maybe are a little chagrined when we compare DS9 to Picard and or Kirk, what's happening in DS9 to a Kirk decision or a Picard decision. And again, I think it's worth repeating. It's not because we're comparing what happened in those, uh, what happened with those characters. It's because the whole point of Star Trek is to present a a moral question and explore the ways that it's resolved. So it's kind of cool that we got to see different stories told different ways with different outcomes. And now DS9 can explore those stories in another way. That said, Data, as I mentioned before in the instance of Command, he kind of resolved this issue the same way that Kira did. He, he blew up the aqueduct. So those people would have to leave. And there's a line that I pulled from that episode. Things can be replaced. Lives cannot. So he saw the bigger picture there, which is the humanity here is really more important to save. Um, yeah. And, and what I like about the other message here is just the kind, again, of empathy being shown. Cisco has empathy for Kira's situation. Kira shows a lot of empathy for Mullabach. It doesn't mean she's not frustrated. It doesn't mean that he's right. But she took the time to listen to him and get to know him as a person. I think that's what was really valuable to see in her story as well. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You know, this isn't the only podcast that the Roddenberry Podcast Network does. Heck, wouldn't be a network if it were. You got Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at War, Priority One, The Trek Files, and more stuff on the way. The best way to keep up with all of it, podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show directly, you can do that at Patreon. That is patreon.com slash missionlog. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, if wishes were horses... Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I was up for a part, on a Hardcastle and McCormick podcast. I will not say I settled, but, one wonders, what might have been. So all I'm saying, Ken, is that John Champion in 1983 is a lot less interested in Hardcastle and McCormick than, say, uh, uh, like a Riptide or a uh, Knight Rider, uh, even a Magnum P.I. You know what I think it was for me? What was that? It was seeing Buffy and Jody's uncle kick Uh, You can get the whole series on DVD for 65 bucks on Amazon Prime. Guess what you're getting for Christmas? And this is going to be the Hardcastle and McCormick podcast coming in 2076. Stand by. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.